I've really enjoyed our time in the book of Acts over these past almost nine months. I think we've been working our way through it and still have 10, 11 chapters to go here, so we've still got some ways to go, but I have a confession to make. There's ways in which our study has been pretty discouraging. might even use the word depressing. You know, and they say confession is good for the soul, so I'm hoping this is good for my soul to confess this to you guys. That, you know, it's certainly been some exciting things, but when you, when you look at the book of Acts, we've been asking this question of, like, what is faith supposed to be like? Trying to strip away all the 2,000 years of tradition and the habits and everything we put on. What is faith supposed to be like? And, and you read through the book of Acts, and, you know, it starts out with the ascension of Jesus. Man, that must have been pretty cool to watch, right? You know, and then in chapter 2, you got the coming of the Holy Spirit. It sounds like a freight train. you got tongues of fire, and immediately you get to learn, you know, foreign languages and et cetera. It's just thousands of people are coming to know Christ, and then there's miracles that are happening, and people are dropping dead because they're lying to the Holy Spirit, and, you know, and there are jailbreaks in the middle of the night, and there's just all this great stuff going on. And then I think about my life. Come to the office, read. Study, pray, have some meetings, go home, cut the grass, come back to the office, read, pray, study, have some meetings, go home and watch the Red Sox, come to the office, read, pray, study, have some meetings. You know, it's, it's kind of terrestrial, isn't it? I mean, where's all the cool stuff, you know, from the book of Acts? Where's all the miracles? Where's all the... The ground shaking. Where's all the pioneering? You know, what it would, must have felt like to, to walk into a city for the very first time, knowing that the name of Jesus had never been proclaimed there, and you're there. To, where, where's the thrill? You know, and it just kind of makes life, as maybe most of us experience it, kind of mundane, doesn't it? Kind of ordinary. It's like we're missing out somehow. And I found it a bit depressing. I don't know, maybe you've had some of the same kind of thoughts. Like, what's missing in my journey? Then I came to chapter 18. And I got to tell you, as I first read through it a few times, I'm like, Lord, what, what is in here for us? And then, you know what? It dawned on me. This is a chance where we get to look at the life of Paul, and he's just doing life like the rest of us. Day after day after day, He's doing the same stuff. And yet in the midst of the stuff that he's doing, we can see some things that communicate to us that our ordinary lives and the things that we're investing ourselves in really do have kingdom substance. They really matter. And they really matter to God. And they ought to be things that we are encouraged by. They also ought to be things that challenge us to up our level of commitment. Now this is going to, This chapter is going to conclude um, the second missionary journey. It's also going to introduce the beginning of the third missionary journey, which is going to be the dominant theme for the next few chapters. But I'd love for you to take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18 with me. You're using one of our pew Bibles that's there in the seat underneath you. It's on page 944. I'm going to do what I've typically done in recent days. I'm going to read through the text. I'll share with you some insights so it kind of comes alive to us. We have a little bit more of an understanding of what's going on. And then when I finish with that, I'll back up and we'll look at some of the so what. What does this have to say to us about faith the way it's supposed to be 
in our ordinary lives, our daily lives. Beginning with verse 1, it says, After this he left from Athens, he there is Paul, and he went to Corinth from one place in Greece to another, where he found a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, who was the emperor, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Just a word of of comment here. We know from history that Claudius, when he was emperor, emperor, issued a decree for all the Jews to leave Rome because they were constantly in this uproar about this crestus. And as best we can understand, it's a reference to Christ. The Jews were having this huge debate. They were always in conflict. They were creating a nuisance in the city because they were always fighting about whether or not Jesus really was the Messiah. So the emperor, probably to the best of his ability, said, all the Jews are going to leave. And so Aquila and Priscilla leave following the emperor's edict, and they have come to Corinth, picking up at the end of chapter 2. Paul came, uh, verse 2, sorry. (coughs) Paul came to them, and being of the same occupation, in other words, having learned the same trade in the past, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. So Paul came to Corinth, didn't have any money, didn't have a church to support him, no team that was with him. He was by himself, so he took up a job. And as he had opportunity, he taught in the synagogues on the Sabbath. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, that's the church of Philippi, Paul was occupied with preaching the message and solemnly testified to the Jews that the Messiah is Jesus. So Timothy and Silas come. Not only are now they working and providing a resource for all of them, but they brought an offering from the Philippian church. And Paul is able now to dedicate himself to teaching full-time that Jesus is the Messiah. But when the Jews resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes, which is a Jewish kind of symbolism, and he says, your blood is on your own heads. He says, I'm clean. From now on, I will go on to the Gentiles. So he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> You're just going to love Paul, right? He gets into a big fight with the Jews. So his idea of kind of calming down the conflict is, I'll just move next door. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, he's there. They're seeing him all the time. He's still a thorn in the flesh. He's just, you know, and it's just... So Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The church is taking form and growing. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because they have many people in this city. Must have been good news to Paul, right? Every city he had gone to, he had become the focus of their anger. He had been stoned. He had been beaten. There were riots because of him, etc. And finally, he gets a word from God saying, you're going to be okay here. He gets this word, this promise. And he stayed there, it says, a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So for 18 months, he just stays and he does the same thing day after day after day. Now, well, Galileo was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the judge's bench. 
This man, they said, persuades people to worship God contrary to the law. And as Paul was about to open his mouth, Galeos said to the Jews, if it were a matter of a crime or of moral evil, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. In other words, he doesn't like them to start with. But if these are questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I don't want to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the judge's bench. Then they all seized Sosthenes and the, the leader of the synagogue and they beat him in front of the judge's bench. But none of these things concern Galileo. We read this and it's just an interesting story. But this was, this was a very significant truth, if you will, that Luke is trying to communicate to the Gentile world. He's writing a, an apology, if you will, for the, for the Scriptures. In the book of Luke, he talks about Jesus. Here he's talking about the church. And in that, he's trying to present Jesus to the Gentile world, to the, to the Roman world. Part of the struggle that was going on was, was Christianity illegal in the eyes of the Roman Empire? You see, in order to be able to worship, to congregate together as a group, you had to be recognized. You had to be legitimized, if you will. The Jews were trying to say, these are separate, etc. And that's what their argument is to this proconsul in Corinth. These folks are meeting contrary to the Roman law. Okay? In other words, we're Jewish. They're not Jewish anymore. They're Christian. And therefore, their meetings are illegal because they don't have recognition from Rome. The proconsul says, I don't see it that way. You guys are just arguing about names and words and et cetera out of your own religion, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. Get out. And with that, he, he gave a legitimacy, if you will, to Christianity. This is something. Now, this isn't a low-level judge who got elected in the backwaters of some small rural town. This guy is like on a circuit court of appeals. He, he's a major figure in the Roman Empire. He's the proconsul over one of the major regions, and he says, I don't find anything illegal with Christianity. It's a huge message that actually set a precedent that lasted almost a half a century before the church began to be persecuted by the Roman Empire. Huge event that's going on here. This judgment seat would have been just a corner of the open market area of the square. And so all of this was public to everybody else. I mean, the Jews drag Paul there, whatever, and, uh, and, and you know, take, takes his seat and they make the argument. And when they're driven away, it's, it's for everybody to see. And so we don't know who it is that's in the mob that beats up the leader of the synagogue. Could have been just the Jews who were mad that he had given them bad leadership and hurt their reputation in the eyes of the community. Or it could have been anti-Semitic Corinthians who took advantage of the opportunity and just took their anger out on this leader. Verse 18. So Paul, having stayed on many days, in other words, 18 months, said goodbye to the brothers and sailed away to Syria. So he's ending the second missionary journey. Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he shaved his head at Sancreia because he had taken a vow. It was probably a Nazarite vow. We don't know for sure. What they did was that they would make a vow. They would let their hair grow. At the end of the time of the vow, they would shave their head, and then they would offer up their hair as a part of their sacrifice to God in Jerusalem. So what we understand from here is that Paul shaved his head. He completed his vow and Sancreia, then he would take the hair with him to Jerusalem, which is where he goes from here, and he would offer up his shaved hair, if you will, as a part of his offering to God. In verse 19, when they reached Ephesus, he left them there, being Aquila and Priscilla, 
But he himself entered the synagogues and engaged in discussion with the Jews. And though they asked him to stay for a longer time, and we can only assume because of his travel plans, he declined, but said goodbye and said, I'll come back to you again if God wills. And he will in the next missionary journey. He'll stay there for three years. Then he set sail from Ephesus. And at landing at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. That's going up to Jerusalem and greeting the Jerusalem church where he would have completed his vow. And then he went down to Antioch, uh, um, which is up to the north, the church that had sent him out. And he set out traveling through one place after another in the Galatian territory in Pergia, strengthening all the disciples. That's the beginning of the third missionary journey. And we're going to pick that up in chapter 19 next week. A little interlude in here, though. A Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, which was the center of learning on the north coast of Egypt, an eloquent man who was powerful in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus, which is where Paul had left Aquila and Priscilla. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and was and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught the things about Jesus accurately, although he knew only John's baptism. We don't know exactly what's going on here, but our understanding is, my understanding is, is that that Apollos knew about the Messiah through the teaching of John the Baptist, but he didn't know about the Messiah through the teaching of Jesus. So here he is, he's, he's proclaiming that the Messiah has come and all this stuff, and, and yet he didn't know about the birth of the church. He didn't know about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know about, he didn't know about grace granted to the Gentiles. He didn't know any of those things. And so, but he's powerful in his teaching. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and after Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him home and they explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when he and he wanted to go and he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers wrote to the disciples, urging them to welcome him. And after he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And Apollos is going to become a very significant leader. And a blessing to the church in Corinth. In fact, as you read the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that some of the factions that had developed in the church had centered around Apollos, showing that he had had a pretty influential role in the life of the church. Some great stuff in this. But I want to pick up on the fact that for 18 months, Paul just did the same thing over and over and over and over again. Some of our lives feel like that, right? A lot of routine. Some of us thrive on routine. Some of us feel suffocated by routine. Count me in. You know, I mean, that kind of, but for many of us, life just seems like it's repetitive. And there aren't a lot of those mountaintop times of things. There's not a lot of times when we're sitting in the prison singing praises to God and a localized earthquake comes and the chains fall off and the doors open and we're free to go. Those kinds of things don't happen to us, right? We're just the poor schmucks that are in the Lord's army. And we wonder if our lives really are experiencing faith the way it's supposed to be. And I find some things in this text that are encouraging to me. Because we want to think that faith the way it's supposed to be is supposed to be dramatic. It's supposed to be the kind of things that can make headline news. I've been there and done that before. Church I pastor down the South Shore burned down by an arsonist. We were on the Channel 7 and Channel 5 and Channel 4 news. It's not a great place to be, actually. You know, sometimes ordinary is not so bad. But I, I, I see some things 
in this text that are encouraging to me. That you and I really can experience life or faith the way it's supposed to be, even though our lives seem to have a lot of routine to them, are ordinary, kind of seem terrestrial, if you will. And one of the things I want to point out to you is just the place of work in faith the way it's supposed to be. What what did Paul do when he got to Corinth? Got nobody with him. Got no money. Got to find a way to pay the rent. Got to find a way to put food on the table. Got to find a way to sustain himself in the city so he can be a witness for Christ. So what's he do? He gets a job. He finds some other people who have the same skill set he does, and he starts making tents. He finds a way to use work to undergird his ministry, his mission. I want to tell you, a lot of us, we, we, we lose that spiritual context with our jobs. Some of you will get up tomorrow morning, you'll go out and you'll do landscaping. Others of you will go out and build houses. Some of you will go out and sell cars or you'll do financial markets. Some of you will do legal work or you'll care for people who are sick or you'll run hospitals. There's all, you'll, you'll engineer things, you'll build stuff. There's all kinds of different jobs, right? And, and a lot of times we look at those and say, well, that's just the stuff I do so that I can have enough money to live, so I can have a home. And, and, and we lose touch with the reality that our jobs, no matter what they are, are there to serve as a platform from which God can fulfill his mission through us. Now for Paul, he used this job to support his ministry. You can use, I can use my job to support our ministry. I don't care what you do. Your ministry, your role will still be the light of the world. So whether you're digging ditches or you're engineering ditches, it's still an opportunity for you to be the light of the world. Whether you're selling stuff to people or you're building things or you're caring for people who are sick, it's still an opportunity for you to be the salt of the earth. You know, whether you're you're suing somebody in court, you know, as you represent somebody, or you're trying to, you know, or you're trying to sell a product to somebody. It's still an opportunity for you to be an ambassador for Christ. Our very lives, every single day, the things that we have to do, whether we're a student, or we're working, or we're working on our in our homes or whatever, it's an opportunity for us to fulfill God's mission for us, which is to represent Him with honor and glory and power in our world. And that takes ordinary life, my ordinary life, your ordinary life, and it just pumps kingdom value and kingdom reward into it if we'll embrace it. There's a second thing that I find encouraging this. And that is, no matter where we go and no matter who we're working with, the gospel can take root. I I think sometimes we think that, well, you know what, the world in which I have to live my neighborhood, the people who are part of my relationship constellation at work and et cetera, it's just a closed door. The gospel is never going to produce any fruit there. And I want to tell you that is just wrong. The gospel can take root anywhere. Let let me just point out a couple things to you from this text about this. Now, some of it is where Paul's just come from. He's been in Athens, right? Athens is the intellectual capital of the world. You know, it's got all the greatest universities, the best thinkers, etc. He's there. He's proclaiming the gospel. A church takes root. In fact, one of the guys who served on the, the group of 30 
Dionysus, he becomes actually a believer. He's one of the chief intellectual architects of the city. He becomes a believer. No matter where you're at, no matter who you're working with, the gospel can take root. Paul leaves there and he comes to Corinth. Now I want to show you something. Um, Corinth, Corinth is located right there. Okay, Athens was, my, my battery, there we go. Athens is located in this part of Greece over here, and Corinth is right here on this peninsula. Now, Corinth was a relatively new city. It had been knocked down several times, and what was there now was less than 100 years old. It was in a strategic place. I want you to see this, this area of travel. There we go. I'm having, there we go. This area of travel down around through here was very dangerous, kind of like sailing around the, end of, the southern end of Africa or the southern end of South America. It was very treacherous. So almost all the travel that went from Rome and Italy to, any of the, to Ephesus, which is here, all these cities that Paul's visited, or even some places over as far as Tarsus and others, all that travel, they would come down, they would sail through this harbor area, they would come to this peninsula where Corinth dominated, they would travel to the other side and then sail out. Everything. That's not just people. That's all commerce. Whether you were shipping it in any way, shape, or form, they actually had systems where they could take small ships, convert them onto carts, transport them across the peninsula, put them back in the water. And if, that, if they were too big for that, they actually had this major shipping system. So here's, here you have this, this sprawling city that's just full of seamen, right? It's just... On top of that, it's a huge city. And in every big city, you find all of the indulgences of the world, right? We know there's over half a million slaves. Population itself might have been north of a million people. You know, so it's a sprawling city. But dominating the skyline is the Temple of Aphrodite. Just like in Paris, you can see the Eiffel Tower from almost anywhere. Anywhere in Corinth, you can look up and you can see the Temple of Aphrodite sitting up on the Acropolis. The goddess of love. Thousands of temple prostitutes come out of the temple every single day, headed out into the streets. It's an immoral place. It's a place that's booming economically, you know, and et cetera. Virtually, I mean, it, it, is, it is the Las Vegas of the ancient world, Sin City. And the gospel takes root. The gospel takes root. Some of the hardest soil in the world, the gospel takes root. Not only that, Jewish leaders and others from Corinth are coming to know Christ. The most unlikely of people. The gospel can take root any place with anyone. I don't care where you're working. I don't care what neighborhood you live in. I don't care who your best relationships are. The gospel can take root. It pumps meaning into our everyday lives. Because it's those people that are our mission field. And the gospel can take root in that world. I want you to see, too, that this text points out something that's really dear to me. We've seen already the importance of work and how God can use that. We've seen how the gospel can take root in any place, in anyone. But one of the things that just kind of comes out through the seams of this passage is the importance of the local church. You know, Paul spends 18 months in Corinth making sure that the church is healthy and solid and planted because it's got a strategic role in this strategic city. He's going to write numerous letters to them, two of which we still have as inspired scripture that are going to talk to them about how to become the church that God wants them to be. 
as he starts his third missionary journey, what does he do? He goes back to all the churches he's already planted, trying to strengthen them and encourage them. The Philippian church is already doing that to him in Corinth as they're sent this offering to help support his ministry. The local church matters. Now, sometimes I think we lose that sense, even as people who are active in a congregation. You know, we stop start to lose the appreciation of the kingdom value of what we do as a church. Does it really matter that the bathrooms are clean on the Sunday morning when people show up? So is it worth it for me to show up on Thursday and Friday and be a part of the cleaning crew? You know, it doesn't matter that the grass is cut. You know, it doesn't matter that there's enough workers in the children's wing so that's not only safe, but we can maintain an environment where we can really teach the kids something about the truth. You know, is it worth it for me to put my money in the plate? You know, is that $600,000 a year that comes in through Hope Chapel really make a difference in the kingdom? You know, we start asking those kinds of questions. And the word back is the local church has a strategic role in the kingdom of God. It matters. Now, I'm not telling you that every church has been faithful with that because that's not true. I've known some churches that in my, my mind forfeited their right to people and forfeited their right to ministry. But I got to tell you, by and large, like the promise that God gave to Paul that the to don't be afraid to keep on speaking because i got many people in this city, that there are always churches in any region that God is there and using them to make a difference. The local church matters. What we do as a church has kingdom value if we're listening to God and doing the things that God has really asked us to do. It matters, and it's worth your time. It's worth your investment, not only in this world, but for all eternity. And I got to tell you, that's encouraging because some of you, you know, you served last hour at nine o'clock with the four and five-year-olds. And sometimes you're wondering, eh, did that really make a difference? And I want to tell you, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. God builds his church. Just one last truth since our time is kind of running out. You know, <clears throat> I'm amazed by Apollos. Apollos creates a lot of questions for theologians and scholars who are trying to study this and how does he know about the Messiah and only John the Baptist and all that kind of stuff. But here's a guy who is a powerful teacher, right? He's already the kind of guy who can stand up in front of you and really teach the Word. And he's in a setting where there's a couple people sitting out, second row from the back, listening to him teaching, Quill and Priscilla. And afterwards, they come alongside him and say, why don't you come home and have dinner with us? And here are these two people he's never met before who say to him, you know, let us teach you some stuff. He's the teacher, right? And here are these people just saying, let us teach you some stuff. And, and one of the marvelous lessons is that if you and I will just maintain a teachable spirit in our ordinary lives, God can keep revealing stuff to us. It may not be mountaintop experiences with Jesus ascending into heaven. It may not have tongues of flame that, you know, representing the Holy Spirit that are dancing over us. It may not lead to jailbreaks in the middle of the night guided by an angel. But God's going to keep teaching us how to be His children and how to live for Him. And there's nothing ordinary about that at all. See, there's a lot in this text to encourage me. That maybe even though 
my experience of faith isn't quite as dramatic as Paul's and some others. doesn't necessarily have to mean that faith isn't the way it's supposed to be. Let's pray together. Father, there's something all of us can learn today. Whether it's to renew our sense of ministry in the places where you've put us where we work. Respecting guidelines, but still at the same time seeking to be an active ambassador for Christ. Whether it's investing more fully in the life and fellowship of the local church. Building relationships that make a difference. Understanding that through those relationships, the gospel can get planted in any place and anywhere. God, there's much for us to learn. God, even though our lives may seem ordinary on the surface, we pray that relationally in our connection with you, they would be extraordinary. Because we're listening as you speak. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.